how about we all stand? And I'm going to read the passage of Scripture together. And our standing is just simply a way of uh, uh, getting our minds and hearts awakened to the, 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 the brevity, you know, the reality, the weightiness of what we're about to read, that these are, these are not my words. These are authoritative words that have been given to us. And so our aim is to really do the best that we can to, to mold our lives according to this ancient wisdom. Ancient wisdom. I love to think of it that way. Ancient wisdom that comes breathed by the Holy Spirit. All right, First Peter chapter 4. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 6, and then uh, I'll pray, and then we'll get to work. First Peter chapter 4, 1 says this, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of his time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time is that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised. When you do not want to join in with them in the same flood of debauchery, they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. It was for this that the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh, the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And this is the word of the Lord. So, Father, right now we ask you that you would just open our hearts, our eyes, our minds, our thoughts, our imaginations to understand this life that you have cast before us. God, that we would um, adopt and live according to the, the schematic that you've given us, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that we would orient our lives around him and his ways and his ethos and his morality and his uh, means of empowerment. So, God, right now, we commit this time in your hands. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you all grab a seat? So we've been in this series going through the book of Peter, and we took kind of a significant break off of this uh, throughout the season of Lent. Um, and now we're back in it. And uh, last week, if you were not here, uh, began basically it was a it was a one one sermon that was divided into two weeks. So this, you guys are getting week two, not necessarily part two, but week two of the sermon that it would have taken me two you know an hour and a half or whatever it is to to teach. So I'm just you know you're welcome. I'm not preaching for an hour and a half, but um, anyways, this is kind of the second week of that. Um, what we pointed out in this little passage of scripture that we described here that we read. Peter is writing to a community of followers of Jesus that are scattered kind of throughout a region, and they're really trying hard to figure out how to navigate a faithful lifestyle to Jesus in spite of the fact that there's a culture around them that's pushing back against them, saying, you don't need to do that, you shouldn't live that way, why are you doing that? I mean, the, to kind of put it into a modern-day context, it's like there's a sense where, where they are... Um, <laughs> They are uh, in, in danger of being canceled, right? That's kind of the, the big idea. They're in danger of being pushed back and canceled upon, and yet they're trying hard to figure out how do we remain faithful? Yeah, we realize the culture isn't like us. Yeah, we realize our morals and uh, ethos and way that we think are out of sync with the broader culture at large, but that's, uh, that's okay. And again, like I've said before, that shouldn't shock any of us. Like The, the reality is like that, what a Christian is, a Christian is one who has been touched and transformed by the culture of heaven. And if you think the culture of heaven is the exact same as the culture of earth, we're all sadly mistaken, right? I think everybody knows that the culture of planet earth is, is broken. It's, it's 
you know, it's messed up. We, we watch the news and we realize we, you know, I don't know about you, but almost every time I watch the news, I'm like, how can this be? It gets, can it get even get any worse? It's like, oh my gosh, or another, you know, influencer falls or another church minister or pastor kind of like gets embroiled in some form of scandal. Like, how can it get even worse? The fact is it will continue. Like, like we live in a broken world, but the kingdom of heaven is filled with God's perfection and goodness. And that heaven Culture has kind of come to mingle, to cross, overcross, overlap this planet. And so those that have been transformed by the gospel uh, are living or seeking as best as they could by the power of God to live loyal lives to the kingdom of God, the culture of heaven. So again, when you begin to live according to the culture of heaven, are you going to get pushback from the culture of the world? Of course. Yeah, it's brainless. Of course, it's going to happen for sure. So this is exactly what's happened to Peter's audience. Like, they're trying to figure out, how do we do this well? How do we do this without capitulating or compromising to the broader culture around us? We really want to be faithful to Jesus. And it's one of the reasons why we've been saying, like, I, we think that this is such an important book for us to be reading right now and tapping into the ancient wisdom and, and uh, uh, just reality that's there for us to kind of jump into. So with that being said, I want to just jump right in. We pointed out last week how uh, Peter kind of writes about two different ways to live, two different natures in which we find ourselves. So I showed you this little graph. Some of this was reviewed from last week. Um, we landed on the last little movement here where it describes the way of nature and the way of grace. This actually comes from a Terrence Malick film, which is called The Tree of Life. And again, that's kind of where I, I derive that. But I think it also fits scripturally within the larger picture of the, the Bible. Two ways to live, two ways to live. One is influenced by the way of grace. Um, one is influenced by the way of nature. Nature is just kind of like what comes natural, instincts, instinctive, instinctively, the way that, that, that base note that just kind of comes out naturally without you even having to think about it. It's just like it's there. You just bristle. You get angry. You have arrogance. You know, you, you condescend to other people that aren't like you. That's just kind of that base note of the natural culture at large. In other words, it's very distinct from the culture of heaven. The culture of heaven is uh, is breathed through grace, like grace. And so with that, we looked last week at the way of nature. This week, we're going to look at the way of grace. So with that, there you go, a little bit of back, background. Now we're going to jump right into the way of grace. So one thing I want to jump into before we even just kind of look at this, um, take a look at your Bibles again, verse 1 of chapter 4. Uh, what does the verse begin with? It's the word, therefore. So just, I want to give you probably one of the best tools that you can have if you've ever tried to read the Bible. And my encouragement to you would be to figure out a habit daily where you can begin to read the Bible. Uh, think of it as a daily training or a daily training of your mind, your heart, your affections, your emotions. Um, think about how many different types of rituals or catechisms we kind of adopt throughout our, our life um, that we don't even necessarily think about. Every time we sit down, we just binge watch something, right? That, that's a catechism. We're getting a, a, a deep dive catechism in some form of worldview, um, or think about a you know moment you open your eyes, you begin to grab your phone, you begin to scroll through the news feeds or your email feed or social media, you know, all of those things kind of, they, they do something to you. They, they shape your soul. They make you anxious. They make you angry. They make you just whatever. They, they shape you, but it's all part of a practice. So think of the importance of reading scripture as a practice, and that will do something to you. It will shape you. It will shape you that when you are finding yourselves in the midst of anxiety, you read passages on how God invites us to come to him, all of us who are weary and filled with anxiety and stress, 
to take his yoke upon ourselves. That begins to shape us. So the point that I'd make is that the way of grace uh, begins to connect us to this work that God's doing. So as you read the Bible, I think one of the best tools I can give you right now, first and foremost, is whenever you read your Bible and you come across this little passage that says, therefore, always know that the word therefore leads to information that came before, right? So whenever you see the therefore, always ask, what's it there for? Some of you guys already know that like, little hack, but I think it's really helpful because it causes us to tap into the information or the wisdom that basically went just before that. It's previous. So it connects, in other words. So with that being said, Peter's writing information here with regard to the way of grace and the way of nature, and now he's going to encourage those that are followers of Jesus by saying, therefore, now listen to what, again what he says, therefore, since Christ suffered in flesh, arm yourselves in the same way of thinking. So the word arm literally is a militaristic term, which basically means, you know, pick up whatever it is that you need, your armaments, in order to be able to, to do battle or to fight or to be equipped. Think of it as, uh, you know, learning a skill or learning how to utilize something that's in your hand. Now, you could have something in, in, uh, in your closet, and let's say a home invader comes in, it's like, a, I don't know, some form of self-protection. It, that's great if it's in your closet, but that does no good if the aim or the end game of that is to help actually provide protection. Um, the same thing is that arm yourself. You could have information about the Bible tucked away somewhere back in your head. Right, if you spend a little bit of time thinking about it or um, brushing up on your biblical literacy, maybe you can tap into that. But that that's not going to really do you any in depth, helpful movement forward in your life. So what he's saying is, arm yourself with this, keep it at the forefront, become equipped, become knowledgeable. Not just knowledgeable, but learn how to use what God's given to you in terms of his word to help us, to strengthen us, so that when we find ourselves in moments of cultural pushback or temptation to compromise or temptation to capitulate to various cultural trends that are just, you know, very hot and in the moment and everybody around you is pushing you into something that is maybe not what at the very base core of who you are you know is to be right or true, that you can in that moment be equipped, be armed, that you can then therefore move forward in some form of flourishing and and grace and kindness. So with that being said, that's what Peter is basically saying. Therefore, because of what has gone before, and we'll look at what the therefore is in just a moment, but because of what has happened and how Christ has done this and that, and, you know, uh, therefore, arm yourself, equip yourself carefully. So bottom line is this. If you are a follower of Jesus right now, if you claim any form of loyalty to Jesus, this is a, this is an invitation uh, for all of us to just pause and ask, are we arming ourselves in whatever it is that he's about to encourage us to arm ourselves in? So with that being said, I want to jump right now into beginning to unpack a little bit further the, the way of grace. Who are and what are various traits that kind of look like the way of grace? So the way of grace, I think, Three things we'll kind of look at here this morning. Number one, we can see that those that are walking or living or moving in the way of grace, they are anchored, their, their deepest desires are anchored in Jesus. Their deepest desires are anchored in the way of Christ. Deepest desires. Now, I want to make a clear distinction here. Now, again, listen to what First uh, Peter chapter 4, verse 2 says. He says, live no longer... And there's some information in between, but, you know, hopefully just carrying a continual train of thought. Live no longer for human passions, 
but for the will of God. This is where we kind of got the idea of like the way of nature versus the way of grace. Those that live according to the way of nature, they live distinctly. They, the, 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 the means that influence and compel and shape and cast a vision or ignite their imagination are really nothing more what Peter describes as human passions. Human passions. Like, again, like I said, our culture hates binaries. I said this last week. Our culture really doesn't like binaries. However, there, there's times that we have to just sit back and let reality become reality. And, and there, are, there are, really are two ways of looking at this. And the scripture, I think, I think is pretty clear on this. That the, the, on the one binary, it's we are influenced by human passions with no other forms of uh, invading thoughts from beyond this realm we call planet Earth. In other words, heaven, whenever it tries to invade or influence or, 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 or shock or change our thoughts or confront our thoughts, we just immediately push it out. Um, that's, what a, that's what a person that would not be following the way faith is. When they think about God, they're, they're not, for the most part, not really interested in the way of God. And again, what is the main force that kind of drives our culture today in terms of the decision-making facets? Really, is it's human passion. And again, more so ever, I think, in our culture, is this idea of, like, I do what I feel is right, especially kind of in the postmodern world in which we live in. It's like, your right, your truth, is not necessarily my right or my truth. And at some point, that, that begins to become cannibalistic and breaks down in on, on itself, and you really can't have a society living according to that. At some point, you have to have some form of objective truth or objective reality, right or wrong. Otherwise, you end up having everybody just kind of doing what's right in their own eyes. And in other words, my right, what's right in my eyes, might actually be deeply offensive and destructive to your way of what's right. And at some point, you have chaos in society and not, not, not order. The point that I would make is, as we go on into this is the way of grace, first and foremost, anchors one's deepest desires in God. Again, listen to how he describes it. Live no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, I want to make a couple of like, quick uh, clarifications here. Number one, I like to think of it this way, is you have temporary desires, and then you have longest desires. So, or if you want to think of it another way, we have strong desires, and then deepest desires. All of us have strong desires. Those strong desires might sweep over you. You don't even necessarily have control over them. They just, they come upon you. And what you do with those strong desires is going to determine an outset. Does that make sense? So you might have a strong desire, I need a drink. But you also might be able to fight that. Say, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to have a drink because I know right now I'm going to be driving or I'm going to be with family, and I don't, I don't want to do that. So I, you have the ability to say to that really strong urge, that strong desire, no. But a deep desire is one that says, the ultimate aim of my life, the ultimate goals, where I really want to be, what I really want to become like, the, the person that I really want to be known as, that's, a, that's the deepest. And, and the, how you answer that is going to really give some clarification as to, you know, are, do you belong to Jesus or do you belong to these, these passions that he describes here? In other words, what binary would you find yourself aligning with? Um, a, a Christian would say, my deepest desire is I really want to be like Jesus. I fall short. I fail. I oftentimes give in to my strongest desires in those moments. Those overtake me. I give in to them. Um, 
when I have that urge to have a drink, I end up maybe having a drink and maybe more than what I should be having. And those are strong desires that overtake me. However, that's not the ultimate deepest aim of my life. I want to do better. And I know that in grace and by grace and by God's power within time, I'm going to be better because Jesus loves me and I love him. As imperfect as it is, as small a faith that I might have, that kind of compares more to a mustard seed. I, I want to be like Jesus. That's the deepest desire. So this is where I want to make really clear. Because if you are somebody that's like constantly giving into those strong desires, and you find yourself in a state of feeling full of despair all the time because you keep failing, I just ask you to like look and ask, what's your deepest desires? Because strongest desires don't give a clear definition as to who you are in the long run, your deepest desires are what's going to anchor you into that. A Christian, a follower of Jesus, one that is in alignment with the heart and kingdom of God, is one that says, my deepest longing and the, the base of my being is I really, truly want to be like Jesus. I want to know him. I want to be with him. If that, I mean, if that's you, like, like rest assured, Grace has taken hold of you. You you are in the way of grace. You may have some growth to, to you know, to add in new practices to adopt and learn. That's okay. It's just part of the life of grace. You know, don't be too judgmental and critical on yourself. Just know the very fact that your deepest desire is for him is radical evidence that God has done something in your life. Just Just chill. Give yourself some space. Don't be so critical upon yourself. Just recognize God's done something. He birthed something, started something in your life that he will be faithful to accomplish at some point throughout, if not in this life, well, definitely not in this life, in the next life to come. You get the idea. So that being said, uh, the way of grace ultimately is one that is anchored as our deepest desires anchored in God. Secondly, I'm going to move on to the next one, kind of spend a little bit more time here and I'll wrap it up with the last one and be done. The second thing that we see with regard to the way of grace is it addresses sin. Now, this is really interesting. So as you see the passage here, and again, in the immediate one that we just read in verses 1 through 6, but also as you kind of follow that therefore, because that's, that's where we're going to go now. We're going to let that therefore take us back to what Peter had just said. So we're going to kind of revisit some things. So this is really important that when it means to actually be a follower of Jesus, one that has been swept up in the way of grace is somebody that actually doesn't just ignore sin or deny it or even rebrand it or repackage it or explain it away. You know what I'm explaining it away is like, right? I got a hot temper because I'm Irish. Really? Really? Maybe it's just, maybe you got some issues going on in your life that you've not dealt with, right? Stop, stop trying to, you know, rebrand it or kind of repackage it. Just, it's, it's best to just be honest sometimes with some of those things that are there. And that way it leads us to be able to deal with it. Uh, Kate, uh, Jackie Hill Perry, she's a author. I, I love her stuff. She said something like this. I had a picture of this, but it's not up there. Um, if you don't acknowledge it, you can't deal with it. If you don't deal with it, you can't heal from it. I mean, this makes sense, right? If there's something going on in your life uh, and you just ignore it, you are never able to really going to be able to deal with it. And if you don't ever really deal with it, you're not definitely not going to heal from it. So, so part of healing, that process, uh, involves this practice of, of actually dealing with it. And someone that has been swept up in the way of grace, uh, this community of people are people that, that, that acknowledge the fact that sin 
is not just a presence, uh, but it's also a power. And that's the way the Bible often describes it. So I want to give a real quick little definition or way of thinking about sin, So just so that we're on the same page. Sin really, in the Greek term that's throughout the New Testament as well as the Old Testament, kind of a similar language that's used there, uh, it's the word hamartia, basically means to miss the mark. I'm sure most of you guys have heard this. It's the big idea that, that what is the mark? The mark is you know, living a life that is fully in sync, fully apprehending, fully living into the way of God, the way that God sets forth. Yet we as human beings, obviously, we miss that mark. We, we don't, you know, we can set out saying, man, I'm going to try as best as I can, but we miss that mark. The, the word sin just simply is, is, is that. We miss the mark. Um, the Orthodox tradition has a view of seeing sin. As sin is like a, um, it's like a, a cancer. It's like a disease, uh, a dis-ease. You know, think of the word ease, but then dis-ease. It's it, before sin, there's ease. In fact, the biblical word for that is shalom. Things are kind of together. When you have disease, you have the opposite of that. You've got chaos. And yet there's this disease within human nature, human beings. And when you get a collective of human be, uh, beings together, you, you know, form neighborhoods and nations and families and, you know, the world in which we live in. And you get very, very complicated forms of sin and brokenness. A bunch of people, 7 billion, 8 billion, whatever, how many are on the planet now, uh, that are missing the mark, not only individually, but also collectively. But the point of the matter is, is that Jesus comes to deal with that sin, not just collectively as a whole, but also personally in our lives. So those that have been swept up in the way of grace, they recognize that part of the pathway is to actually address and deal with sin. Now, again, I, I realize that the idea of, of even acknowledging something is even slightly wrong with us as human beings flies and just smacks in the face of our modern sensibilities that wants to say, no, bro, you're special. You're really good. We're going to give everybody a trophy. But I lost. It's okay. You're a winner. Like, like we, and again, I realize, I realize some of that has been a, a reaction to make sure that people because the family unit is maybe breaking down and not providing that, people feel this deep sense of like, I'm just a filthy, horrible human being. Now, again, an unhealthy amount of that can lead to pathological actions. So I, I think the, the intention to try to say, hey, everyone's a winner, is, I think is perhaps maybe rooted in some, some good movements. But the fact of the matter is, at the end of the day, we're all broken. We're all infected by this thing. And we're really never going to fully heal unless we acknowledge the fact that sin is, is a part of our lives. In fact, I would even go so far as to say this, that when we acknowledge the reality of sin in our world, I think sin actually provides a good hermeneutic, a good way of kind of uh, understanding the world around us. The, the way the Bible frames this concept of sin, that it describes it as uh, that sin has infected humanity in such a whole level it's, it's caused us to not function well. Why do we have disdain and hatred and racism and ethnocentrism, ethnocentrism and uh, pride and arrogance? Why do, we have, why do all these things exist? Why is there murder? Why is there such a sense in uh, some people's mindset of just feeling so filled with disdain and brokenness that they are looking for some degree of affirmation and love where it oftentimes leads them to either over-medicating or self-cutting or self-harm or self-medicating. Oftentimes at the root of all of this is some form of complex nature that we would just describe, the Bible describes as sin. Jesus comes to deal with sin. Why? Because he knows it's really serious. And secondly, more importantly than that, he loves you. 
he's a good physician. He's a good God who actually cares about us. Now, I, I realize that Jesus has been given a lot of bad PR. But the fact is, the biblical description of who Jesus is and what he's come to do is that he is wildly in love with this world and seeks to redeem it from this pathological condition of sinfulness because he loves the world. I mean, John, John the New Testament, famous passage that you see always kind of crop up on someone's poster at some football game, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God so loved the world that he gave. And his aim was to, to deal with this issue of sin to bring about healing and wholeness. Now, here's the deal. Those that have been swept away or swept into this reality of this way of grace, they balance proportionately this, this concept of sin with grace. And, and I say this really carefully. They balance it proportionally. In other words, if you focus, hyper-focus too much on sin, or exclusively on sin, I should say, uh, at the absence or at the, you know, dodging of the reality of, of grace, then what you have is somebody that's just kind of like, Constantly pointing the fingers at everybody else that's doing wrong because they actually think that they're constantly doing it right. So you have this kind of imbalance. Or you have those people that are just like, it's all about love. You know, God, if he exists, he accepts everybody just as the way they are, but doesn't really care about sin. And, and that's kind of the sentimentalism, sentimental God that really at the end of the day that can't save you because he's unwilling. That God is unwilling to deal with the pathology that we call sin in this world. You really can't. It's like kind of like going to a doctor and be like, doctor, am I okay? No, you got a massive tumor right on the base of your spine. If we don't remove it, you're going to go paralyzed. But you wounded my ego. I feel really bad about that. Okay, I'm sorry. You're all good. Why don't you just go home and, I don't know, eat a TV dinner and you'll be fine. Binge watch something and everything will be okay. That's not a good doctor either. So at some point, you've got to have somebody that knows how to balance these things together, proportionally. Sin and grace. And people that have been brought into the way of grace, the path of grace, do this in a, in a way, or at least should have at least the Templar schematic to be able to do this rightly. So if you think of it this way, this idea of sin and grace ultimately leads to these two things, humility and confidence. We oftentimes don't think of these things too being able to be compatible next to each other. Think of somebody that's confident. You rarely think of them as being humble. Think of somebody that's overwhelmingly humble. You rarely think of them as being confident. But I'm, but I'm suggesting that those that really know how to navigate this balance of sin and grace have learned to walk in this pathway of both humility and confidence. Not self-importance, not condescension, not pomp, uh, Tim Keller would describe it this way. Like, like those that navigate this balance, there are many versions, what he would describe, of revival. Life. This idea of not doing it well. If, for example, someone just focuses on morality. The, the, the moralists would oftentimes be filled with insecurity or anxious uh, because they're not doing enough or they're not doing it right. So they're constantly feeling inferior to other people around them. And rarely are they going to be filled with confidence unless that confidence is like a self-confidence. Now, like, I'm doing everything right and everybody else is doing it wrong and I'm better than they are. And that type of motif that can oftentimes happen. Whereas a relativist, you know, and this, is, this would be somebody that has a tendency to look at their life and say, 
I will choose my life based upon how I think is best for me. That's a relativist. In other words, there's no other external source of wisdom capturing their their imagination. It's just this mindset. Again, if you really want to think of like the spirit of the age, the spirit of the age is it's relativism. We live in a world that says your reality is not my reality. My reality is radically different than all of this tribe's reality. My reality is the right reality. We all live in that world. Like that's the world that we live in right now. That type of relativism leads to overconfidence. I can and I will live the way that I want. Oftentimes it lacks humility. Oftentimes has a tendency to exhibit disdain towards other people. Because you're not embracing, you're not accepting my reality. Therefore you are bringing forth violence upon me. But those that have been brought in the way of grace, they balance humility and confidence. They balance a sense of sin and grace. And this is what Jesus does in terms of reshaping our hearts. Again, this is why I would say it's, 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 not, it's not reminiscent of the gospel when Christians have a tendency to swell up with pride and arrogance and look at the world around them and say, they're not doing this and we're going to judge and accuse or ban or, you know, whatever. Like at some point you look at that, just like, man, that's, that's literally the... Uh, Another version of the type of cancel culture and elements that are out there, it's just the yin to the yang. It's like the, the same thing, just on the opposite end. It's like the flip side of a coin. And what I'm suggesting is that the way of Christ is an entirely different coin altogether. It's an entirely different culture altogether. It's one that knows how to acknowledge the fact that, yeah, there's a deep brokenness, not only out there, but also right here. But... Jesus loves me so much. He came to do something about that brokenness. And so I'm, I'm deeply humbled by the reality. And so therefore, that causes me to look at other people that have been infected by the exact same sinful proclivities that I have had and have had to deal with and navigate. I can look at them with this overwhelming sense of not like disdain. How dare you? How dare? I look at them like, oh my gosh, I get it. I've been there. I know what that's like. I've walked that path. Man, it's tough. I, I, there's a sense of empathy and compassion and kindness and acceptance and embrace. It's radically different. And that's this idea. Now, I want to end this little section on one last little thing I think it's worthwhile noting. Because Peter actually talks about it a little bit. Now, the fact of the matter is that throughout the broader Christian culture, we have to stand back, I think at some point, and Peter will get into this a little bit later in the teaching, but I'm going to end with some final thoughts on this and move on to the very last one we'll be done, is um, I think Christian culture as a, as a whole has not always done a good job at navigating this. And I'll even go so far as to say that Christian culture has oftentimes had a tendency to kind of circle the wagons of their own pathologies and sinful proclivities and sinful actions to the point where the world sometimes has to come in and say, wait a minute, what's going on in that church by that pastor, by that leader is straight up misogynistic, is straight up evil, is straight up abusive. It needs to be called out. And I'll give you examples of that. I'm not going to go down too far down this path, but you get the idea that within our world over the past several years, like for example, if you see and saw the Hillsong documentary that was on, I don't know, Amazon or something like that. Um, is an example of that. There was abuse that was covered up for many, many years. And they, the, the big aim of it is oftentimes what happens are Christian institutions 
becomes so powerful and so big and so influential that there's a tendency or propensity. And it's not just evangelicalism. This has been within the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church. Anybody, I don't care what institution it is. It's been in politics. It's Harvey Weinstein. You get the idea. This is not an exclusive Christian deal. However, Christians, people that have been swept up in the way of grace, should be expected to deal with these things in a different way. And when they don't, it brings suffering upon the church, not because they're deeply flexing their devotion to Jesus, but because they're being called out for the very same sins that are part and parcel of the world at large. So, for example, when a church covers up the abuse of a pastor or a leader or a very gifted, well-known uh, speaker or, you know, apologetics minister or leader, like Robbie Zacharias, you're familiar with that, I'm sure. Again, I'm not dropping names up. Some of you might not be familiar with. If you have never heard of that, you can just Google and check it out. Um, very well-known apologist that was called out. There was a string of years and years and years of sexual abuse that got covered up because there was an attempt, an aim to protect two things. Number one, the institution that was created. And number two, the person. When, when we try to protect these things, and to allow sinful actions to continue, at the end of the day, it brings damage and destruction to the gospel. Because at some point, especially in our world today, it's going to be found out. We live in a you know, hyper-social world that everything gets thrown on the internet. And the moment that happens, it brings out the worst of people. And the, the fact of the matter is, is that sinful actions need to be called out. And a way of grace, gentleness, always, 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 with the door wide open for forgiveness reconciliation, because that's who we are. And never with vengeance. I'm going to go out when I have a chance. I'm going to go drop some form of like hate speech or hatred or disdain upon those other people. Moral superiority. I'm going to flex that because I got the high, moral high ground. A Christian who's been swept up in the way of grace recognizes nobody has a moral high ground. Unless his name is Jesus. And I mean, the, the number one Jesus. That he himself who claims the moral high ground, has lifted me up from my sin, but has given me a new name, a new place, a new kindness that I never deserved. And this is what we see here. And let me, let me, let me, let me read this, this last little section here, First Peter chapter 4, so skip ahead. First Peter chapter 4, verses 14 to 17. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. It's basically, you know, Peter quoting Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 15, he says, let None of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or meddler. You know what I think he's suggesting here is like, hey, it's possible. If you're a Christian, you can suffer as a meddler. I'm not sure what a meddler is, but maybe someone's getting in other people's business. I don't know if we would call it social media. Um, I think that's exactly what it is. Like, he's a prophet. You know, Peter, apparently, he's like, he saw, I looked through the quarters of time, and he saw this thing called Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, where people are just, like, meddling everybody else's affairs. Like, if you are a meddler, and you're, and again, I'm, I'm guilty of it. Come on. We've all said stuff online. We're just like, oh, man, I feel like I need to go back and edit that and modify that. The things I said, I just did that this past week, okay? So these are, like, up to the moment you know, examples. But the point that I would make is this. He said, look, if, if you suffer, don't suffer because you, you're an evildoer. He says, for it is time for judgment to begin in the household of God. And what he's going to go on to say is like, look, at some point, when the church is too busy calling out Nancy Pelosi or other forms of 
politicians that you don't agree with. And that's fine. I don't, there's a lot of people I don't agree with on all sides. That's fine to call them out from time to time. However, when that becomes the main aim to the exclusion or even the cover-up of sinful proclivities and activities from people in the community that has been reshaped by grace, then we got an imbalance. We have the flexing of moral superiority, all looking like it's hyper-spiritual, but it's really not hyper-spiritual. It looks nothing like Jesus. It smacks of arrogance. And I think in the long run, it actually ends up uh, scarring the Christian testimony. Does that make sense? So how do we go about this in a better way? Number one, I think just simply acknowledging, we got, we got to look at ourselves first. Like, is there sin in our camp? Is there sin or things that we need to look at in our own lives? Again, if, if this causes you to just become hyper humble or, you know, inward focus, like, oh my gosh, I'm a failure. I should never like get involved and serve in the church. I shouldn't go to Josh's, you know, volunteer orientation because man, I got so much baggage and bad stuff. No, no, no. You're, you're focusing too much on the sin stuff. Create space for the grace reality. Like again, one who's been shaped by the way of grace balances these things both carefully and proportionately. Um, Peter would go on to say, First Peter chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, again, kind of going back a little bit further, he says, In the end of all things at hand, therefore be sober-minded, be self-controlled, and above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So again, this is just another way of thinking, that sin is not something that we hyper-focus on, nor is it something that we ignore. Someone who's been swept up in the way of grace recognizes that, man, there is a pathology, a really, really bad cancer in the world and in my heart called sin, rebellion. It needs to be dealt with. And this is where the gospel repeatedly over and over and over comes back and says, it has been dealt with. Jesus on the cross died for your sin to do something about it. But the end of the story is not that. It's that he has brought you into a new family, new hope, new life, new resurrection, new goodness has been bestowed and showered upon you, and we've been brought into that new way of being human. This is why he would say, look, be self-controlled, be sober-minded, but really, at the end of the day, make sure you remember, keep loving one another. Love. That's what he invites us to do. Love doesn't ignore sin. Love doesn't, like, pick up the rug and just kind of sweep it under and just, uh, it's not there. And over time, you know, this church institution organization has got this massive mound of garbage underneath it. All because somebody somewhere up the food chain is like, we got to protect the institution. Man, if people find out what happened to my son and how he acted and how he mistreated people, then they'll stop tithing to the church, they'll stop giving to donations, and our church will lose its influence. No, dude. The name of Jesus is greater than your institution. The name of Jesus is greater than your family name, no matter how great your family name is. The name of Jesus is greater than the brand that you've been able to craft around your whole like little ministry. The name of Jesus is greater than that. If those become the things that you self-protect and allow the name of Jesus to be drugged through the mud or allow victims of sexual or sinful or any form of active abuse to just simply be silenced because that's your way of protecting the institution, Man, I honestly think at the end of the day that the heart of Jesus is radically grieved. Judgment must begin, but it must begin in the household of God. So I'm done with that rant. Last one. 
verse, number three, the thing it describes is it acknowledges that suffering precedes glory. And again, this is a theme. In fact, it's the very name of this entire teaching series, uh, suffering and glory. Because this is what Peter keeps going back to over and over again, like following Jesus, just being human, period. Being human brings suffering, right? But those that are swept up in the way of grace realize that suffering is not the end. Suffering just simply precedes glory. This actually takes us back to two weeks ago where we had this special service on Sunday morning. Two services. It was awesome. This thing called Easter. (laughs) Where that's the message right there. Like, yes, suffering and death are real. But resurrection is promised for those that follow Jesus. Because as Jesus suffered and died and was buried, the third day he rose again. And those that follow Jesus, follow Jesus into the grave, which is what baptism is all about. That's why we're going to be talking about that. We're going to be doing that because if you're following Jesus, your way of basically saying, I'm dead to myself. I'm, all those like passions and longings and desires and proclivities that oftentimes influence and shape me, I will not, and I do not want those to continue to shape me and influence me and guide me. I want to be someone that allows the deepest desire in my heart to be that of Jesus. I want him to be the one that my heart longs for. First uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 18, I'm done. It says, Jesus suffered once for sins. He has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of the Father with angels, authorities, powers, having been subjected by him. And then we jump back into First Peter chapter 4, and listen to what he says. Do not be surprised at the fire trial which has come upon you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice when the glory is revealed. This is the promise. This is the hope. This is what it means to be walking in a life that's defined by grace. It looks like radically anchoring your deepest desires in Jesus. It looks like being one that addresses sin. And it looks like one that acknowledges the fact that, yes, they're suffering, but resurrection, glory comes. Why don't we all stand, and as we conclude, Josh will come forward. We will sing a final closing song to meditate, to consider, to confess sin. That's what we need to do. Uh, We will have some communion available. Um, Excited to announce that over the summer and just kind of drop, share some thoughts. We're we're excited about trying some new, fresh stuff over the summer with regard to communion and doing it together, and we'll unpack that in the weeks to come. But excited about what God's doing here in our church and just in this community. But again, at the end of the day, it's not just so much about what happens here on a Sunday in terms of our, this little event we call Sunday morning church service. It's, it's about this community that's being shaped. So the moment we say amen, you guys all leave and go back into your you know, neighborhoods and classrooms or workspaces or wherever it is, families, um, that, man, the, the gospel then begins to be lived out. We begin to show forth, showcase the goodness of Jesus. Um, Let's just bow our heads and close our eyes. And we have some people that will be handing out the communion to you guys as you come to the front if you would like. As you feel prepped and ready, you can come forward and receive uh, the, the cups and take it back to your seat. And we'll finish by concluding together. Um, so hold on to it and we'll, we'll do it all together. But as we kind of move into this moment, just... If there's anything that's going on in your life, you need prayer for anything, like we don't want to miss this moment to pray for you for anything that's going on. We have some 
ushers that are over off to the side or leaders that are off to the side that would love to pray with you, pray for you. I'm here. I'd love to pray with you, pray for you. But this is the moment right now for us to just do just a little bit of reflection and like think, where, where am I? What way of life has influenced me? Do I, am I, you know, am I following? Maybe if you would have to look at your life and say, I, I think it's the way of nature. I, I want to encourage you to know right now in this moment, Jesus can like radically alter that, change that. It's, it's as simple as you just asking Jesus, Jesus, I want you to be the base note of my life. I want you to be the very foundation. I want you to, I want my life to be squared around you, built upon you as the foundation. And if that's you, wherever you're at, man, I would I'd love to pray with you, pray for you. All you have to do right now, even in this moment, if you're like, what do I do? Just ask Jesus to transform your heart. Confess your sin to him. That's what the Bible describes. Repent, turn away from this old lifestyle that's been fueled by your own passions and desires and say, Jesus, I want your life to become what defines me. The will of God to be my will, to merge these together. So let me pray. We'll sing, respond. Jesus, thank you right now. Turn our hearts to you. We lift up our voice to sing in response to your love.